from We First and Goal 17 Media. Welcome to Lead with We. I'm Simon Mannering, and this is the final episode of season two, as I'll be taking some time off to put the finishing touches on my new book, Lead with We, before we return with new episodes in the fall. Today I'm joined by Rodney Foxworth, CEO of the nonprofit Common Future, that provides capital to marginalized communities to create a more equitable economy. I couldn't imagine a better episode to end the season with. So Rodney, welcome to Lead With We. Simon, so uh, grateful to be here for the conversation and looking forward to it. Rodney, you know, you're, you're doing such powerful work and such important work right now. And it's, I'm always fascinated by the journey that anyone went on to actually, you know, end up in the position where, you know, we're talking on the podcast. So give us a sense of what led you to kind of really lean into a nonprofit like Common Future and to really address marginalized communities. What's your background? Thanks for opening up with that question, Simon, because I think oftentimes we don't have enough discussion about the why and the journey that someone takes um, as it relates to the purpose that they find in their life and their career. And so for me, it's a very deeply personal mission. Um, I would say that it's a calling in so many ways, Simon. And so to begin with, just really briefly, I think for me, the context really begins with the fact that for your listeners, I'm from a place, Baltimore, Maryland, in the U.S., that is one of these remarkable cities that I think has been impacted by so many economic and racial injustices for many, many years. Um, you know, it's a city in which you really get to see up close the ramifications of things that are becoming really buzzwords that might be really hard for people to connect with, but anti-Black racism, economic dislocation, you get to see the real impacts of mass incarceration and over-policing in communities, particularly African-American communities. Baltimore is a place that is majority African-American, I believe 63 or 63% or so African-American. And I benefited from having a wonderful household, a working class black household, um, in which my parents oftentimes were working two to three jobs each my mother and my father, to provide a life for their children. And so I witnessed up close what it was like for a working family in the United States to really struggle to have a meaningful life, one that had some relative prosperity that really elevated to all the things that we want to aspire to, right? And having witnessed that and experienced that directly, firsthand. I also had a set of experiences, Simon, in which I really lived and continue to live with the ramifications of anti-Black racism. You know, there's this, this story that I've begun to be kind of more comfortable sharing in which when I was in the third grade, Simon, I was accused by a teacher, my teacher, of being unable to read and cheat um, on, my, on my assignments and in testing. And my mother, of course, understood that this was not the case. My mother had made sure that I was not only reading proficiently, but reading well above my grade level. I was just a shy kid, you know? I was in the back of the class. I didn't participate a lot in, in you know, the day-to-day -day of um, 
answering questions and those sort of things, but I went about my business of doing my classwork and, 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 and whatnot. And so what I saw, Simon, was, you know, my mom organized other parents and they had actually discovered a pattern in which black boys were being identified by this particular teacher and um, categorized as, you know, being unable to read, being problematic in the classroom in terms of behavior, things of that nature. And, and so witnessing my mother and other parents, black <laughs> parents, mostly mothers um, as well, um, organized in such a fashion, I witnessed, you know, both the impact of anti-black racism in my formative years and continuing to be, but also witness what happens when communities organize and actually assert their own authority and power. And so, Simon, that's really for me fundamentally where that story begins for me on my journey of really witnessing and experiencing all the injustices, the systemic injustices, and how they actually show up in our personal lives, but also seeing how people have power to assert as well. And, and, and the tremendous capacity for people to do extraordinary things. And so that's really how my, my journey began, Simon. And I think what you're sharing is so important that, you know, these, these formative experiences that really shape our lives and careers and our sense of self and really kind of stay with us for our lifetimes, they're deeply, deeply personal. There's nothing about this. It's, it's an abstract idea or some sort of altruistic sort of idea out there that people can aspire to because it's admirable. This is deeply personal in people's lives. And you, you mentioned something which I want to go back to, which is, you know, it's almost people are using a lot of buzzwords these days, especially on the back of Black Lives Matter and so on. And eventually those words get hijacked or used so much. In some ways they lose their meaning and it's kind of just giving a nod to these issues, yet at the same time, they're deeply personal, as you said. So when you've got, when you're at the helm of an organization like Common Future, how do you navigate that? How do you take advantage of the heightened awareness for the need for change at the same time that people are kind of using it as a buzzword and almost sort of just ticking the box without really addressing it substantively? You know, it's um, one of the things we cannot make the mistake of doing is effectively seeing heightened awareness as equating to heightened desire to make change in action. And I will be honest with you, I, I'm, I am a realist. I have obviously to do the type of work that, you, that I do, that we do, um, you have to have optimism. However, what I would say, Simon, is that my optimism really is placed much more on the communities and individuals, like when I witnessed with my mother and the other parents organizing, because I see such tremendous capacity from those who have been most impacted by all these injustices. So I have a lot of optimism there. I will admit that over the past year or so, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and so many countless individuals um, that have faced unjust um, murder at the, at the hands of the state, and a range of other things, obviously with COVID and how that has the impacts of COVID, the pandemic, really disproportionately impact um, those who are low wealth, people of color, et cetera. So there's heightened awareness, Simon. 
And at the same time, I have witnessed and observed and experienced almost sort of a numbness to it by those who have been have had their 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 awareness heightened. Now that might sound a little cynical. Um, so, but that is something that I've experienced. That said, to your question, Simon, one of the ways that we navigate that is my organization by design and purposely has, you know, purposefully um, has been structured in which we actually ensure that we have majority people of color with lived experiences inside of the organization making decisions, right? And so for us, what that looks like is making sure that both the organization and the leadership of the organization is made up of people, especially women of color. I believe we're about 75, 80% women of color in, in the same in terms of the leadership of the organization. And again, that's by design, that's intentional. Because when you look at our sector, Simon, decision makers oftentimes don't look like the individuals that make up the organization that is common future. And so by having those sets of experiences, it really helps us navigate so much of these these terrains. I think that's really important because you need to kind of lean into those who've had that experience to make it, to legitimize the efforts you're making, that they can speak with authority. But, you know, what you said about your own personal experience, watching your mom when you were young and seeing the change that she drove when she organized the other mothers, it's that direct personal experience and participation that makes all the difference. And to your point about the last year and a half, I'm optimistic too, because I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think, you know, if we give into pessimism, then we're, we're damned. You know, what are we going to do? We're just going to spiral downhill and, you know, we're not going to be surprised by what we get. So it's a conscious choice to be optimistic. But also above and beyond that, if you look at all the ways that people have self-organized, over the last year, whether it's to rally around COVID, to rally around their company, to rally around their community. And then obviously, yes, with the Black Lives Matter movement, the global response there where people took to the streets in their millions and cities around the world, it does give you at least optimism or confidence in the power of the every person to really self-organize and raise awareness of an issue and, and drive change. And so you had that experience when you were young and help my listeners understand, you know, tell us what Common Future does. It's a nonprofit, but it takes those principles of collaboration and participation and really then focuses their energies on those underserved communities, correct? That's absolutely correct. And one of the things I'd like to say, Simon, is that while we are a nonprofit in structure and form, um, and that's really critically important, I really like to think of us as a mission-driven organization, right? Um, and, and that's important because I think oftentimes organizations, particularly those in the nonprofit sector, um, might not borrow from a multitude of disciplines and industries to really understand different approaches or lean into different approaches for success, right? And so for your listeners, Common Future does a number of things. Simon. And a few of the things that we do that I think are particularly pertinent for this conversation, uh, because one, we believe that those who are closest to these problems and challenges are those closest and most proximate to the solutions. And so one of the things that we do, one, we provide financial capital in the form of grants and actually what we refer to as restorative investment, 
into an extraordinary network of organizations working to build power and community wealth in the communities in which they live in, right? And so what does that look like? We provide general operating support to those organizations. And really, Simon, we look at it as catalytic capital or innovation capital, where these organizations, and oftentimes individuals as well, extraordinary social entrepreneurs in these communities, can have a set of resources, financial resources, where they can innovate, where they can test, they can experiment. And wow, over the past year plus, obviously with COVID shifting so much of the world that we live in, having that type of capital is really important. And, and I know the type of financing you provide is unique because often it's hard to get a loan if you don't have a strong credit history or you don't have collateral to show for it. So I guess you, you provide loans you know, on a strength of character more. That's right. And so really quickly on that, Simon, one of the exciting things that um, you know, we're about to launch in the next few weeks is something that we've devised internally at Common Future. Uh, we refer to it as the character-based lending pilot. And it's exactly in the name. We're basing it on character. And what we've done, Simon, is Common Future has taken money off of our own balance sheet, set it aside for this pool of capital, we then raise co-investment from high net worth individuals, foundations, et cetera, in which they're providing investment capital at 0% to common future, right? So that we can lend it out um, at a reasonable rate that is supportive of businesses. That, that's even better than today's rates. That's a pretty good rate <laughs> there, Rodney. I'm just going to say That's a pretty it, you know? good rate, right? Yeah. Um, and, and the other thing that's really important about this, Simon, is that we've, we're working with three institutions in the Common Future Network, all of which are, are either Black or Indigenous-led and, and, and staffed and governed. And they're the ones that are actually determining the businesses and entrepreneurs that will, be, that will get these loans. And so they are organizations that are working hand-in-hand hand every single day with these businesses and entrepreneurs. And so, again, going to that point of trust... We said Common Future doesn't have the same level of relationships with these entrepreneurs and small businesses in these communities. So we need to cede power and control to the organizations that do. And so that is another thing, another example, the type of thing that we do at Common Future. I've got to imagine this has got to mean so much for those aspiring entrepreneurs in communities that are struggling where they don't have a lot of opportunities. I mean, what, what difference, all the stories you must have seen, what difference does it make to people's lives when they finally get a loan so they can get a leg up and start their business? You know, it's, um, I can tell you, Simon, you know, as a, I consider myself still an entrepreneur, even though I'm running an institution, a nonprofit institution at this point. Um, but I have started a few different entrepreneurial ventures myself. And I, again, going back to personal experience, you know, I don't have family wealth, right? Um, it's likely that I'm going to have to provide financial support to my parents and my family um, as they right. age and get older. And as I was launching these different things, these different uh, entrepreneurial endeavors, again, I didn't have friends or family. Um, that I could raise capital from. I didn't have assets that I could 
bring to the table to get a loan or what have you. And so I deeply understand um, the vulnerability, the lack of comfort and safety when you're attempting to do these things, right? And so I think for entrepreneurs, uh, particularly entrepreneurs of color, especially women uh, of color entrepreneurs, when you're able to have access to, you know, what, what many in our network, um, I'm going to cite my, my dear friend Jessica Norwood of the Runway Project, um, believe in you capital. You know, she, she coined this term, believe in you capital. It's money. When you're an entrepreneur, you receive capital that is low stress. <laughs> you didn't have to go through all these hurdles that someone, an institutional and individual said to you, we believe in you. I mean, that's so powerful just as a message in its own right. I want to I want to ask a cynics question here. I want to ask an unkind, arguably insensitive question only because it's part of the mix that, you know, these sorts of issues provoke. Absolutely. You know, the, at, at the heart, these underserved communities are suffering racism and social injustice that is unconscionable and has just hurt and damaged so many people's lives. But from a purely business lens, what is the value proposition of investing in underserved communities, communities of color, not only for those communities, but cities, the country, more broadly? Like, why is it so compelling to do? You know, Simon, thanks for asking the question. And it's not an insensitive question, because I think it's a question that so many individuals and institutions ask themselves. And so, you know, I would argue that, um, not just myself, but there have been many studies, Simon, on this question in which the conclusions are such that effectively, we are, in the United States, we're projected to become a majority people of color country within the next two to three decades. Now, imagine living in an economy, living in the United States, in which we've said, you know, we're only going to invest into say 10% of prospective innovators, job creators, community stabilizers. That has adverse impacts upon all of us. And there's been so many research studies, Simon, that indicate that by under-investing into entrepreneurs, small businesses, communities of color, we're actually, our collective economy is losing money. That we're leaving money on the table, billions, trillions of dollars on the table because of our unwillingness to allocate investment into these communities. And I think even above and beyond that, you know, and, you know, it may provoke some people for me to say this, but in a lot of ways, the talent pool that you've had to compete with has been limited by keeping people of color and even women out of that competitive set that have all the opportunities to take advantage of capital and entrepreneurship and innovation. But if you really widen that pool, then more people can compete. You can move faster. You can unlock more innovations. You can you know, establish, build, scale markets. There's so much upside for a more expansive approach to this above and beyond just you know, just the human dignity that's involved. That's right. You know, there's a, 
there's a great phrase that people oftentimes say that I, I absolutely believe in because I experienced it in my own life. Talent is distributed equally. Opportunity is not. Yeah. yeah. Right. I think about this for, again, think going back to personal experiences, Simon, you know, I oftentimes engage with people that are sort of blown away by my story and, you know, and say, Rodney's extraordinary, he's exceptional, et cetera. And to be honest, Simon, I look back into my life and I acknowledge that I have some gifts, that I have a level of intelligence, you know, some talents and those sort of things. But when I look back at it, attending Baltimore City Public Schools, um, there were so many people in my age cohort, my peer group, that just didn't have opportunities presented to them, but they had extraordinary talent. They had it's, exceptional ability. And, and, you know, that potential is not only robbed of them, it's robbed of everybody. I know you had a personal experience of this with your grandfather, you know, when he came back from serving the Korean War. Like, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because, again, I think it's such a, you know, this doesn't become real until it's personal. And yet the country is just full of people for whom this is a daily experience. So tell us a little bit about that. You know, I think it's one of those stories that, you know, again, um, Simon, I've only become more comfortable sharing recently um, because we don't, it's really hard for people, I think, to share these stories, but also grapple with its meaning. Because oftentimes, again, specifically in the United States, there are a lot of individuals and institutions, companies that will say, well, you know, racism you know, that was like 400 years ago. We, we've, we've repented. We like, we're, we're good now. We're, we're talking about it now. It's, to, it's, it's making headlines. That's know? right. We're discussing it. And yet, if you don't understand your, the history of some uncertain things. So again, so my grandfather was a vet. Um, and when he returned as a veteran, he was a Purple Heart. Um, he was not afforded the full GI benefits um, that should have been afforded to him simply because he was a black man. Now, for your listeners, some of which might have this experience themselves, but also might have the flip side of the experience. The middle class in the United States, so much of it came from an investment from the U.S. government, particularly um, from GI benefits and things that made it easier, more affordable to purchase homes, to go to college for free, Extraordinary levels of investment. And yet what we know in our history and what I've experienced personally um, is that disproportionately African-Americans were denied those opportunities that their fellow white <laughs> colleagues in the military were afforded. Now, mind you, my grandfather passed away four years ago at this point. And he was 84 years old. So when we're talking about history, we're talking about something that's very recent, right? Simon, so, mean, it's not as though this was so long ago. And what are repercussions of that, right? You know, he had to do so much more to have ownership of a home. And, you know, he didn't have an opportunity to, to do college and all those sort of things. And then that has generational impact. And on the flip side of it, there are households that were able to benefit from those investments from the government, creating and building assets for generations to come. And again, I think that is so 
remarkable. I, I'll leave you with this on this exact point, um, Simon. Just the other day, it was it would have been the birthday of Emmett Teal, July 25th. And what's remarkable is that Emmett Till would have been 80 years old. And for those who are listening, Emmett Till was a young boy. He was, I believe, 14 years old that was unjustly and savagely murdered um, during a time in which that could happen if you were a black man, black boy in this instance, which is happening consistently. Um, having a conversation with a white woman. And there were all these false accusations of things that black boys were doing and such. And I just, I just, I raise this for the listeners because oftentimes we want to put things so far in the past, Simon, but Emmett Till would have been 80 years old. I mean, that's in our, it's, that's, that's in our lives today. And I, that's right. I want to, I want to ask you on a personal level, you know, your grandfather who passed so recently, did he ever remark to you that progress has been made? Or did, was it in his opinion, did he feel like we're still much where we were, you know, where he struggled after he came back from, you know, serving? Did he see a lot of progress? It's such a great question. And I, you know, actually I have a, a photo of my, my grandfather um, in his military um, attire, uh, like right in front of me. And, you know, my grandfather was such an instrumental force in my life, um, helped me really be what I would say, what he was striving for me to have a liberated mind, to think for myself, to question, to be able to draw conclusions on my own. And what I would say is that my grandfather certainly acknowledged levels of progress, but he acknowledged them to be insufficient. Because what my grandfather would always point out to me was that, you know, he was particularly interested and in, in, in passionate about the collective uplift of, of black people specifically. And, you know, he had a large heart, so it wasn't just black people, but that was really for him. And what he would say, I think, you know, channeling him is that the system is largely the same and we've made space for more people to participate in an unjust system, including black people. And so for him, I think having a different system entirely was the goal. And I, I think, you know, what's interesting too in this conversation is that there are a range of perspectives, particularly for uh, folks of different generations. And I, 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 I believe that, I personally believe that there's been progress, right? Because again, I just referenced Emmett Teal. Um, and at the same time, when I referenced that, you know, we'd like to believe that something like that wouldn't happen today in 2021. And yet we do have so many instances of black men and women being unjustly and savagely murdered by the police, for example. Um, and, and so I think these things are kind of recurring, but I do believe that there's been some progress, uh, Simon. I do think within the lens of what my grandfather would say is that the system is still the same system. The work that you're doing is so important from just a justice and equity point of view, but also, as we said, from a growth and innovation and community development point of view. And I know that you've just had 
um, the largest gift to your organization from Mackenzie Scott. Which so firstly, congratulations. That is awesome. Thank you. Um, thank you. And you know, I, I wonder as you look to the future, Roddy, what 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 are your hopes in terms of what you can do with that capital? Like if you can just sort of cast your eye out to the future and the growth of the organization and the communities it can serve. What, what's your strategy yeah. looking forward? I really appreciate that question, Simon. And I think this goes earlier to my comment about, yes, we're a not-for-profit. We're a 501c3. However, we like to think very differently. We want to be able to model different types of economic structures that really mirror the types of things that we fund and invest in support of. And so one of the things that we're thinking a lot about, Simon, and we're still in the you know, early stages of, of really figuring this all out, but we want to actually be able to structure different vehicles for us as an institution to drive our work. So let me get more specific. We, as an organization, we operate as a pretty traditional 501c3. We raise money from philanthropy, we have, we have an earned income portfolio, but it's quite modest, Simon. We raise capital from philanthropic sources. We invest it into institutions in our network, et cetera. We create a lot of value. However, I want us as an institution to be less reliant on philanthropic resources. And it's not because I simply want to do that in a vacuum. It's because we want to be an institution that is which already predominantly people of color, predominantly women of color. And I want to be able to model out what it means for an organization made up of individuals such that that work at Common Future to really own and co-create within the economy that we want to see moving forward. So, for example, Simon, what might it look like for a Common Future to be able to incubate a new type of investment advisory that is solely focused on, has a mandate to move capital in ways that authentically develop economic prosperity and power in communities of color. What might it look like for Common Future to explore opportunities in fintech that really center the needs of the types of communities that rep are represented by the Common Future Network, right? Those are the types of things that we're thinking about, Simon, that go beyond, you know, the traditional 501c3 dynamic. And that's what we look forward to, really endeavoring into being catalytic investors, being co-owners ourselves, being incubators of these different types of structures that can really create economic prosperity and wealth in communities that have been excluded and extracted from. Your, your word catalytic is so important there. Once you get the success stories off the ground, they build momentum and they start to <clears throat> create their own market forces that then allow them to grow even further. It's just getting it off the ground and making sure you get that kind of wind behind your back. And then increasingly, everyone can benefit, including, including those communities that, that have been underserved. And I know, you know, COVID has been so hard on the country and everyone around the world, but disproportionately on communities of color. And, you know, 
it's, so it's a little bit of the last 18 months has just been a little bit sort of extraordinary in that sense. But, you know, as you look to the future, you know, if there were people of wealth or high net worth individuals that wanted to support Common Future, or if there were sort of aspiring entrepreneurs in disadvantaged communities that wanted to sort of connect with Common Future to take advantage of what you're talking about, where should they go? What should they do? The first thing they can do is go to our website, which is commonfuture.co. You actually get to see a number of initiatives that we're working on as an organization. And there are a number of ways of supporting. One, we create a lot of content that can be shared. And I think that's really important, Simon, because that helps to reframe people's thinking and their mind, you know, their mindset. So that's something that can be, that can happen. If you're interested in partnering with us to be able to provide investment or grant capital into some of these institutions that we work with, we have such an extraordinary pipeline of opportunity to support institutions and individuals um, across the country. Those are two fundamental things that people can look to do. One thing I wanted to, to add to your point about COVID, Simon, and this is fundamental to the way that Common Future operates, and I think this is how people need to operate and think moving forward. If COVID has taught us anything, it has taught us that we cannot predict the future. Right, Simon, I'm seeing right now the CDC being criticized, some could argue rightfully or not, being criticized for flip-flopping on their approach to how to handle the pandemic. As a leader, Simon, what I actually see is when you get new insights and data, you shift, you change, you adapt to what is now understood. Now that we understand that the Delta variant, for example, is spreading in the ways that it has been, well, that has to shift. And I, I bring this up, Simon, because I've actually been struck by how, despite living through COVID, we've all been living through this for you know 18 months plus at this point, right? Despite that, people still are really looking for certainty. And I would offer to people that we have to get comfortable with learning and experimentation and being comfortable with pivoting when necessary because we get new information. And that's the fundamental thing about Common Future, and I mentioned this earlier in our conversation, providing catalytic capital that allows institutions and leaders in our network to experiment, to learn, and innovate because they cannot say a year from today, X, Y, and Z will happen. But they can learn from what they're doing, and I think that's critically important. I think that's so true. And I, <clears throat> I'll confess that one of the things I shared with my team even just a week ago was, as we look for that certainty, I saw there's this saying out there, which is, you know, life is not this sink or swim proposition. You've got to learn to ride the waves. That's right. And I think this sense of de being, de being destabilized and off kilter that we're all feeling and we don't necessarily enjoy, we've got to understand that that's going to be consistent moving forward. And I I want to say, Rodney, firstly, enormous respect for what Common Future is doing. It's collaborative approach to, you know, truly inclusive work in underserved communities is so important. And I'm just really excited that you've got this support behind you now to scale your work as you move forward so that you can really transform, you know, even more lives. So thank you so much for your time today and for all the insights you've shared. Simon, thanks for including me in the conversation. It's been a great discussion and I really appreciate what you, what you all are doing. Thanks, Rodney.
Thanks for joining us for the final episode of Lead With We Season 2. Our show is produced by Goal 17 Media, and you can always find more information about our guests in the show notes of each episode. Make sure you subscribe to Lead With We on Apple, Google, or Spotify, and do share it with your friends and colleagues. You can also watch our episodes on YouTube at We First TV. We'll be back with new episodes this fall, and in the meantime, I'll be busy putting the finishing touches on my upcoming book, Lead With We, which is now available for pre-order at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Books. See you again soon, and until then, let's all lead with we.